It's hard for me to believe it's been almost two years since I sat down with Irene Levy-Baker to discuss her book, 100 Things to Do in Philadelphia Before You Die. That episode is still so popular among Twisted Philly listeners. Irene graciously shared so many gems from the book, including historical sites, attractions, sports, and restaurants. Speaking of restaurants, Philly has a terrific food scene. Sometimes I forget just how great the food scene is here because I have my favorite restaurants I like to visit time and again, like Barbuzo's, home of the infamous salted caramel budino. I love grabbing brunch at Sabrina's or Green Eggs. I have my favorites outside the city too, like Savona in Upper Marion and the Dilworth Town Inn out in Westchester, serving what I believe is absolutely the best cream of mushroom soup anywhere in the Delaware Valley. Irene Levy-Baker knows the Philly food scene. Her nearly 30-year career in public relations here in Philadelphia, focusing on restaurants and hospitality, make her a bit of an expert, in my opinion. She knows about the neighborhoods that are filled with terrific places to eat, popular restaurants, and out-of-the-way locations, about which you may be unfamiliar, but once you find them, you will be craving more. After the publication of 100 Things to Do in Philadelphia Before You Die, Irene spent a year and a half working on her second book, Unique Eats and Eateries of Philadelphia, featuring not only 90 of the best restaurants in and around Philadelphia, but also the stories behind those locations. Best doesn't necessarily mean the most trendy or the most expensive. It means where you will have a unique and memorable culinary experience where you'll learn about Philadelphia's food scene, the people in the kitchens running the restaurants, how do they pull it off night after night, and what keeps people coming back day after day for some of the best food in the country. In her book, Unique Eats and Eateries of Philadelphia, Irene shares history about the city, our restaurants, our chefs, plus amazing stories you'd never expect, like a marriage proposal over chocolate a surprise 90th birthday party, and so many other secret tales hidden under the tablecloths or behind the kitchens. By the way, did you know Wawa has secret menu items? Yeah, I didn't either, but you're about to find out about that and so much more. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this twisted, food-filled journey. Please join me in welcoming Irene Levy-Baker back to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. I am sitting here with Irene Levy-Baker, someone who you all should remember. I cannot believe it's been two years since you were last, or almost two years since you were last on Twisted Philly. Welcome back. I'm so happy to be back. I'm so fond of your Twisted Philly listeners, and I've been hearing from them for the last two years. That's really fantastic. They are just an amazing group of people, and I love knowing that they're as moved by your first book, 100 Things to Do in Philly Before You Die, as I was. 
and that they're still ordering. You are back today to talk about your new book, Unique Eats and Eateries of Philadelphia, which I have a copy in front of me. Folks can't see this, but it is filled with post-it notes. Something I love to see. I guess one of the first things that I wanted to bring up in the introduction, there was something you wrote that really stood out to me. And it says, to be included in this book, the restaurants needed not only a good story, but also good food. I think the good food is obvious, but the good story might not be quite so obvious. So tell me a little bit about that. When I was writing Unique Eats and Eateries of Philadelphia, I thought of myself as a food detective. So I was looking for good stories. Sometimes I knew what the story was going to be when I went in. Sometimes I thought I knew what the story was going to be, and it changed. And sometimes I had to dig up and find those stories. You've been doing public relations here in Philadelphia for close to 30 years, and a lot of that was working with restaurants. When you say sometimes you knew what the story would be, is that through your career here in the city of Philadelphia? Yes, and I've been doing PR, working one-on-one with chefs and restaurateurs and food writers and diners through my work at the Convention in Philadelphia Convention Visitors Bureau and Spotlight Public Relations, my PR firm. And that's where I got a lot of, knew a lot of the stories and also learned a lot of the tips that are in the book. So in addition to 90 restaurant stories, there are lots of tips like secret menu items or how to get into Philadelphia's secret speakeasies. That's something I very much wanted to ask you about. I found that section of the book absolutely fascinating because I don't think people realize that in these days where prohibition is no longer an issue, that we actually have speakeasies here in Philadelphia. One of them is a Rathskeller. I had no idea. There are bars where there is no sign. So unless you know that they're there, you wouldn't know they're there. You mentioned one, Franklin Mortgage and Investment Company. What can you tell me about that? Well, people laugh because they see a line there, but they don't know why. It's definitely worth going to. It's a fun little bar. And above it is, of all things, a tiki bar. When you talk about the line, but people don't know why, it creates that fear of missing out. Something's going on, but I'm not sure what it is, but I absolutely want to know what it is. Another place that generates a line is Hop Sing Laundromat, which is a bar in Chinatown that's Condé Nast named not the best bar in the city, not the best bar in the state, but the best bar in the world. But there's no sign, so you wouldn't be able to find it if you didn't know where to ring the doorbell, and you won't get in if you don't know the rules. And if you break the rules you'll be on the list of people who are banned for life. And there are 1,600 people on that list. Who are banned for life. Yes. When you think about Philly, I can understand why some people probably got banned for life. (laughs) You don't want to be on that list. No, absolutely not. These are the kind of places that are so interesting to me. Something that is out of the way. It's not quite so obvious. and, And it's probably an experience unlike any other. Well, and the fun of the book was that I actually sat down with the owner, Lay, of Hop Sing Laundromat and talk to him about the rules and why he has the rules and what he was trying to do when he created the place. So when you read the book and you go there, you're in the know. There were some obvious inclusions. We have very famous parts of the city that are so well known for numerous eateries like Chinatown and South Philadelphia. One standout I have to mention was Wawa. Wawa was not something I expected to see in the book. Now, mind you, I am not complaining because I am a huge Wawa fan. Tell me and our listeners, how did Wawa make it into this book? Any food place that motivates people to get tattoos of the logo, I mean, if people feel that strongly about it, it needs to be in a Philadelphia food book. 
People probably feel like they know everything there is to know about Wawa, but they may not know that there's a secret menu and how to find that secret menu and how to order from it. I didn't know that until I read the book. One story I want to bring up, and, and I'll let you tell us a little more, bit more about it. I was, I was thrilled to see that you had Will BYOB in here, Chris Curse's story. Would you tell us a little bit about Chris's story? So when Chris was a teenager, he was in a car accident. And he was severely injured, had multiple surgeries, and spent a year recovering. And during that year, he watched a lot of food TV, read a lot of cookbooks and food magazines, and started cooking dinner for his family of 10 every night. And that changed the path of his future. I mean, he ended up becoming a chef because of the things that transpired during that year while he was healing. What I think is so amazing about Chris is that as a result of the accident, he lost his sense of smell. Yes. Which seems like it would be such a, a requirement for a chef, something that, you know, is one of their, their tricks of their trade is how things smell as well as how they taste. Maybe what makes a chef so talented is the ability, like, like Chris, is the ability to retain what that smell is like, just like you can remember a melody in your head if you so, haven't heard it in a while. Food would make us think so, right? Tavern on Kamek is another spot that I think the story is is in a way even a little more remarkable than the restaurant, which is obviously fantastic. There's so much about this spot that people believe is linked to the Underground Railroad. Right. So there are a lot of tunnels running under the places in Midtown Village. Tavern on Kamak is actually on a tiny little street, Kamak Street. So between the tunnels and the tiny little street, lots of secret things can easily be going on there. One of them may have been the Underground Railroad. The other was that this is the oldest building that's continuously been a gay bar in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And both of those things may have lent the ability to have secrecy there back in the days when we needed secrecy yeah. for those sort of things. It's a really fun place. They have a piano bar where people sing. And there's a funny story about it. Many years ago, there was a hat check girl called Mary the Hat. And she lived directly across the street from the bar. And the street's not very wide. You could almost put both your arms out and touch both sides of it. But she didn't like to get wet. So on nights when it rained, she would call a cab. She would slide in the back door, slide out the other side into her apartment building. And she would pay the cab driver. And he was a patron of the tavern on Kamak. So he would give the money back to the doorman of her building, who would give it back to her in the morning. I'll tell you a sweet story about John and Kira's chocolate. Sean and Kira make the chocolate that are like bumblebees and ladybugs. You can get them at DeBruno Brothers or in mm -hmm. farmer's markets. The first month they started their chocolate company, Bon Appetit put them on the front cover and called them the best chocolate in the country. And it was the Valentine's Day issue. When the fact checker called John and said, are you guys married? John said, no, but leave it in the issue. And when the issue came out, he got the first copy and he handed it to Kira across the dinner table with a diamond ring taped inside. It's not the story I expected to use in the book. I expected to talk about how they use fresh mint and herbs in their chocolate. And they give the seeds to high schools. High school students grow it. They buy it back from the high schools to use in the chocolate. And then once they sell their chocolate, they give a portion of the proceeds back to the high schools. That's a good story, but not quite as sweet. <laughs> not all the restaurants mentioned in the book are in Center City. There are restaurants in the suburbs as well. Like when I went down to Chester County to uh, go to the mushroom farms. 
Before I went to the farms, I stopped for lunch at Portobello Restaurant in Kennett Square. It's a very mushroom-centric restaurant, not surprisingly, and I loved it. And I thought, wow, this would be a fun restaurant to put in the book. And so after lunch, I sat down with this chef and his wife, Brett and Sandra Halbert. Brett told me all about his background in casinos and catering, and it was all nice, but I wasn't really sure there was a story. So after about an hour, we were wrapping up, and I still wasn't sure I had a story for the book. All of a sudden, Sandra saw someone walk by behind me in the window, and she jumped up and ran outside and gave him a hug. And then she came back in and she said, oh, I'm sorry, that was Mr. King. And I said, who's Mr. King? And she said, the first week that we opened, Mr. King came in and he had dinner. And then he said he wanted to see the owner. And we were scared, she said, because <laughs> we knew in a small town like Kennett Square, if people didn't like our restaurant, we got bad word of mouth, we would never survive. So we went out to talk to Mr. King and he said, I just had dinner here and I'm not going to be a regular. And she said, why? And he said, I'm a very old man, and I don't expect to be around that long, but I have something for you. What turns out that Mr. King was a retired opera singer, and he broke out in song, and he sang, you'll never walk alone. And everyone in the restaurant turned around and applauded. And she was so taken with him that she threw her arms around him, and she said, I think you're going to be around a good long time. In five years, when you turn 90, I'm going to throw a 90th birthday party for you. So sure enough, just the week before he had turned 90, they threw a 90th birthday party for him and his family flew in from all over the country to be there. And I said, bingo, there's your story. He just happened by while you were sitting there. I know, right? And that you got to be a part of that and experience that. That's just a moment that is such a precious gift. And, and it happened like just before I met them. And I have a picture in the book of him at his, with his birthday cake. Speaking of the pictures, there are remarkable pictures on every page. Photographs of restaurants, photographs of the chefs, of the food, which is to die for. And then there's a beautiful color section. To me, this was a little bit different than your first book. There was a lot more imagery in this one. Yes. It really whets the appetite, not just for the food, but also the history and the stories and the experiences that can be had there. Tell me a little bit about your process for setting up the photos, deciding which ones to include, and the photographers? So a lot of the photos, I tried to find photos that went with the story. So if the story's about John and Kira, or if it's about Mr. King, I tried to find the right photos to complement the stories. And as you say, to whet your appetite and make you hungry for more stories. <laughs> there is a movie that just opened. Folks can probably guess what it is, a Philadelphia film. It's called Creed Two. But what a lot of folks might not realize is that Adrian's isn't really Adrian's, but it's a restaurant called the Victor Cafe, which is one of my favorites. My father, when I took him to Victor Cafe, said it was the best meal of his life. I'm almost afraid to take him back because how do you top that? You don't. Right. <laughs> the special thing about Victor Cafe is that the servers are opera singers and opera students. So every 20 minutes or so, one of the servers breaks out in an opera. It's an incredible experience. I mean, the food is great, red gravy, classic Italian. And when you top it off with the arias, it's just an incredible experience, whether you're an opera fan or not. I love the photographs that you included. You've got a picture of a gentleman named Toffer who is performing while folks are dining on some of the best Italian food in the city. 
what I think is so charming is that, and, and people will recognize this when they watch Creed or Creed 2, is that, you know, you'll see photographs of Adrian and Rocky Balboa's family interspersed with John DeStefano and his family's opera memorabilia all right. over the yes, walls. Yes, they actually uh, intersperse pictures in. How great is that? So right now, if you happen to see Creed 2, be sure to keep a lookout for Adrian's because it's really the Victor Cafe. How did you decide what to include and what not to include? Because there's so many fantastic places to eat in the city. So that was probably the hardest part. The format of the book calls for 90 restaurants, but I cheated. There are actually 254 <laughs> restaurants mentioned in the book because I included lists of things that people most often ask me, like vegetarian restaurants, vegan restaurants, gluten-free restaurants, where to go for brunch, who has private dining rooms for special mm -hmm. events. So I wanted to make the book as good a reference source as possible. But my favorite page in the book is probably the page with 10 tips on how to get reservations at Philadelphia's hottest restaurants. Got a really robust list of suggestions and tips to navigate some of the challenges in getting into some of Philadelphia's best restaurants. I've heard a lot of people complain they'll go on open table and there's nothing between 5 and 9.45 at some of the hottest restaurants, Saha, Vernick, Veg. So I give them 10 tips. None of them involve doing anything awkward like tipping the maitre d'. <laughs> None of them involve knowing, having to know the chef or the owner. They're all so simple and so doable. It's a very accessible list. It's something that absolutely everybody can do. And even if you are trying to get into Tallulah's... Which takes a year and a day. Irene tells you how you can do it. Sooner. I'm willing to share three of those tips with you. So number one, if there's nothing on open table, don't give up. Simply picking up the phone and calling, you can often get a reservation. And that's because... Restaurants pay open table for every reservation that comes in that way. So not every reservation slot goes on open table. If you call and they still don't have a reservation, ask about walk-ins. Veg, for example, takes walk-ins. They hold a certain number of tables every night for walk-ins. So if you live in the city, you can just walk in, see if they have a table available, or eat at the bar where they serve the full menu. And if they don't, walk up 13th Street to Midtown Village where there's Another couple dozen great mm -hmm. restaurants to eat at. If you're coming from the suburbs and you don't want to take a chance of getting in, I tell people, make reservations somewhere at 7. Walk into veg at 6. If you get in, cancel your 7 o'clock reservations. And if you don't get in, you have a backup plan. There's so many more tips besides those three great suggestions Irene just shared with us. But to see them, you have to get the book. Now, you mentioned Zahav, which is another great spot. And it also calls out the fact that even though the page is for Zahav, you've also listed Michael's other restaurants. Yes. One of which is Goldie. You want to talk about a line. You're pretty much going to find a line every day standing outside of Goldie waiting for those tahini milkshakes. Yeah, I would wait in line for those tahini milkshakes. Oh, when I have. When people ask me my favorite restaurant, what I tend to say is that I crave specific dishes at specific restaurants, and that milkshake is one of them. I actually had a listener who is from Pennsylvania. They don't live in Philadelphia, and they were coming in for the day, so they had reached out to get some suggestions on where to go, and I suggested that they make sure they stop by Goldie's for a tahini milkshake. The best part was that, well, I shouldn't say the best part, but her children were lactose intolerant. They normally don't get the opportunity to have milkshakes. The tahini shake, which has absolutely no milk in it whatsoever, was perfect for them. Oh, that's great. That's something else that you find as you go through the book is that there's just all of these little surprises about so many of the restaurants 
Cook. I loved seeing Cook in here. I had the pleasure of taking a class there with some coworkers about a year ago. And it really isn't a cooking class as much as it is what you call a dinner theater experience. <laughs> My husband wasn't excited about going to Cook the first time because he's not a cook. And when he saw it, he changed his tune. So it's a gourmet kitchen with 16 seats around it. And some of the city's top chefs cook there. So you're up close and personal with them. But they're also feeding you throughout the class. So everything they make and tell you how to make, you eat. And there's also wine. So you walk out with a full meal and a very interactive experience. Now, with only 16 seats, it can be sort of tough to get one of those seats for top chefs. So there is a tip in the book about how to do that. Let's say somebody was coming to visit Philadelphia and they only had the time to stop at one restaurant. Let's say they're traveling on a budget. They can spend $25 for a dinner for two. Where would you tell them to go? That's interesting because one of the things I made point of doing in the book was it does include some of Philadelphia's most expensive restaurants, but it also includes restaurants you can go to on a budget. It includes fast casuals. It includes cheesesteaks, of course. But I'd have to say the best place to go on a $25 budget is clearly Reading Terminal Market. I was hoping you would say that. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a page dedicated to Reading Terminal Market in the book. Not only is there a page dedicated to Reading Terminal Market, but there are several market vendors that are in the book who have their own great stories, like Bassett's Ice Cream, which is the oldest vendor in Reading Terminal Market, like Herschel's Deli, which was named after the owner's uncle who, who saved his father during the Holocaust, like Metropolitan Bakery. I mean, there's a lot of individual vendors have, who have great stories. Reading Terminal Market, I think for folks that, that haven't been there, when you first walk in, it can be a little bit overwhelming. In the best possible way. In the best possible way, because any food you could possibly imagine you can find there. And so the great thing would be to have Irene's book with you when you go to the market, because as she mentioned, there are specific vendors in the market that are listed in the book, vendors for lunch, for dinner, for dessert. So it would be much easier to figure out and navigate where you want to go in there. I think anywhere you go, having my book is an asset. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I might would, be biased. No, I would agree with that. I, abs I find it absolutely delightful. And I think one of the most enjoyable things for me is that even as someone who lives in the area and eats in Philadelphia quite often, there are restaurants in here that I've never been to. Well, it's fun to discover new places. It's also fun to know the stories behind them. So if you've been eating at a place for years and years, but you don't know why it has the name it has or what its special dishes are, or take Grand Cafe Laquila at 17th mm -hmm. and Chestnut. A very busy corner. Lots of people have probably been there, but they may not know that it started in Italy. And the whole town, including the restaurant, was felled by an earthquake. So instead of rebuilding in their small town, they moved the whole restaurant to here to Philadelphia. Why Philadelphia? Because we have the largest Abruzzi population in the United States. And not only is it a great Italian restaurant that's very authentic with a coffee bar, but also they have a secret menu item that you can't get unless you know to order it. And that is their vertical gelato tasting. So you get five heaping spoonfuls of their amazing gelato in five different flavors. Oh my God, that sounds so good. Now your listeners know to ask for it and yeah. it's super good. I think the other thing that happens sometimes is you tend to get a favorite or a few favorites and they become your go-to. Right. I know you have been to each and every one of these restaurants in this book and, and even more. 
Where can folks find this fantastic book, Unique Eats and Eateries of Philadelphia? They can find both my books, Unique Eats and Eateries of Philadelphia and 100 Things to Do in Philadelphia on my website, which is www.uniqueeatsphilly.com. And if they mention that they heard about it on Twisted Philly, I'll sign it for them. They can also get it at Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores, on Amazon. But of course, I can't sign those. No. And Irene has graciously been doing this for two years with her copies of 100 Things to Do in Philly Before You Die. I know so many listeners have taken advantage of that personalized copy with Irene's signature in it. My first book, 100 Things to Do in Philadelphia, has five sections. Food and drink is one of those five sections, but that book also includes sports and recreation, music and entertainment, shopping and fashion, and history and culture. Which do you think is the longest section? Food. Well, you would think so, and everybody (laughs) guesses that it is Philadelphia, so history and culture is the longest, but you're right because food is the second longest, and that's what led me to write the second book, which is all about food, because I knew there was a lot more there to dig into. And this really is a foodie town. I, I don't know if people realize that when they don't live in the area or they don't get to visit so much. So if you're someone that really enjoys unique culinary experiences, Philadelphia is a great city for that. Yeah, and I think that's due to a couple of different things. The first dates all the way back to our founder, William Penn. He founded Philadelphia based on the idea of religious freedom. So that brought in people from all over the world, of all different cultures, which is one reason we have so many different great ethnic neighborhoods and great ethnic restaurants. I think that people like George Perrier, Jean-Marie Lacroix, and Steve Poses also were forerunners in our restaurant scene. And they spun off protégés who are now spinning off their own protégés all over the city. The third thing I think made a difference for Philadelphia was our very archaic liquor laws. It's super hard and super expensive to get a liquor license. So chefs made, let's say, lemoncello out of lemons. Since they couldn't get liquor license, they opened BYOBs, small restaurants where you can bring your own bottle. They were able to open restaurants in a less expensive way because they didn't buy a liquor license. And we Philadelphians benefit from that because we can go to these restaurants, bring our own liquor, and save ourselves some money. And they really focused on the food. Yeah. Yeah, they're very chef-driven. I can't express enough just how beautiful the book is. This time of year especially, really any time of year, but this time of year especially if folks are looking for a really unique gift, something special, something that people would really love and enjoy I think both of Irene's books would make just such a wonderful gift for someone. You know, I said in one of my book talks that it's the perfect gift for any foodie. And my mother interrupted me and she said, it's really great for anyone you know that eats. And everybody eats. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's also great on standalone. It works well with a uh, restaurant gift certificate too. It makes it a little more personal. That's a great idea, especially if you're shopping for somebody local. You could go through the book look at all the different restaurants, find one that you think somebody would really enjoy, and then pick up a gift certificate, tuck it in the book, stick a bow on it, and you are ready to go. I also want to encourage, I know a lot of folks from outside Pennsylvania and Philadelphia have bought your first book. And I think this is a great opportunity for folks outside of the city to get to know what the food scene is like. Thank goodness we're finally getting credit for our great food scene. We're finally winning James Beard Awards, and people are starting to recognize that Philadelphia is a great food city. And I hope that the stories, just reading them, sort of whet people's appetite for Philadelphia foods. They absolutely will. There were so many stories in here that I hadn't heard of before. 
I loved seeing McGillan's Ale House in here because there's so many stories behind that. And Irene was gracious enough to connect me with the folks at McGillan's for an earlier episode back in 2017. When you think about what you like about Twisted Philly, the history and the stories and all of the, the hidden secrets behind so many of the episodes that I share, that's a lot of what this book is about. Well, just to encourage people to go back and listen to that podcast that you did about McGillan's, let me give you a little uh, synopsis of that. McGillan's is the oldest continuously operating tavern in Philadelphia. It opened in 1860, the year that Abe Lincoln was elected president. Ma and Pa McGillan opened it. They raised their 13 children upstairs. When Pa died, Ma ran it alone, even through prohibition. And she was tough. She had a list of people who were too rowdy to get in. (laughs) So, and it read like the social register, like some of Philadelphia's most important people weren't allowed in. When she died, her daughter Mercedes sold it to the Spaniac brothers. And when they retired, they sold it to their daughter and son-in-law, who still run it today with their grandson. It's an everyman's bar. You get city workers and middle-aged people during the day. And as the night gets older, the crowd gets younger. One of my favorite things about McGillan's is the collection on the first floor of all of the old Philadelphia retail signs. John Wanamakers and Strawbridges and Gimbals. I just, I look at that and it brings me back to my childhood and coming into the city with my grandparents. Yeah, it's fun. That, that's a collection of signs of places that McGillan's has outlived. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah, it's been around 158 years. So I want to ask you a little bit about City Tavern because I don't think folks realize that this may not be the original building, but it is pretty much an exact replica of the original building that burned down in 1834, and it is on the site where the building stood. What I like about City Tavern is that if you're spending time in the historic district, you can stay in that mood and mode by going for your meal at City Tavern. So you're still in that historic feel with the kind of foods that might have been eaten during colonial days. I mean, to me, it just works. And I love that it's so easy to really replicate those dishes because of how easy it was, even as far back as the 1800s, to get access to amazing game and fresh produce because it's right near the river where where all of the food was coming in. And so many of the dishes might have a, a little bit of a, a modern flair, but really very traditional ingredients that, that harken back to the 1800s. Yeah. And the chef and owner, Walter Stabe, is just a remarkable Philadelphia pioneer. You mentioned Chinatown. We didn't talk about East Pashunk. No, we didn't. East Pashunk is in South Philadelphia, and one restaurant's better than the next. There was one restaurant in East Pashunk that actually asked me not to be in the book. Really? Yes. I had dinner there, and I fell in love with it. And after dinner, I introduced myself to the owner, and I told him about the book. And he asked me not to put him in it, and I'll tell you why. He and his wife run the restaurant with with a server. And they're only open a couple of days a week because it's just, you know, three or four of them. And they do everything themselves. Maria's in the back with a six-burner stove making every dish from scratch by herself. There's no other help in the kitchen. And Mark is in the front of the house running that. And they do everything themselves. This is Mr. Martino's Trattoria. It's set back a little bit in an old hardware store, but it's been around for 27 years. And all these other restaurants have grown up around them and made Mm. the street really exciting. So Mark was afraid that if they were in the book, they'd be overrun with people and too much business that they could, couldn't even handle it. In fact, they have all these little quirky things about them, like 
He used to be an antiques dealer, so it's full of antiques. It's really charming. If you call to make reservations, if you leave a message and don't hear back, it means you're good. If he's booked that night and can't take you, he'll call you and tell you. Unlike any other restaurant. Right. <laughs> so I was so charmed by this place. It's BYOB group, by the way, that I went home and I wrote it up anyway. Now, I wasn't going to put it in the book if he didn't want to be, because there's no point in making people unhappy. But I wrote it up and sent it to him. And I said, I know you don't want to be in the book, but just read what I wrote. And he did. And knock on wood, he agreed to be in the book. Another great neighborhood right now that has remarkable restaurants is Fishtown. I'm loving eating at Fishtown. There's Chew Fishtown and Front Street Cafe and William Mulherin and Sons and Soraya, which I just can't get enough of. It's a new Lebanese restaurant in Fishtown. There was a restaurant in East Pass Yonk that, God, I don't think I've been there in probably 30 years. It was one of my father's favorites. It was called Mara's. You know, I've not been to Mara's, but I've heard a lot about it. So it's one of those restaurants that I've been put that I've put on my list to visit. I, I need to go back. I, I will never forget. And this was so long ago. I'm sure the prices have changed, but it was very similar in the sense that it's very small, didn't have a lot of staff, family in the kitchen in black dresses cooking all the food. But you could get a bowl of mussels that was enormous for like seven bucks. <laughs> and it was the Best, the best mussels and gravy you've ever had in your life. I'm, 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 I'm ready. So it's been a long time, so I, I can't vouch for if it's still the best, but I'm willing to check it out. Yeah, the research is tough, but someone's got to do it, and I'm all up. I'm up for it. <laughs> so who goes with you when you check out each of the restaurants? Is it so always the same people? My husband is typically my VP of research when I'm working on the book. Well, unfortunately for him, once the book comes out, he shifts into vice president of schlepping because he's in charge of carrying those heavy crates of books. I should have written a, a shorter book because this one's really heavy when it comes in crates. <laughs> and some of the photographs you mentioned were taken by family members. Yes. Yeah, some of the photographs were submitted by the restaurants. When I couldn't find the exact picture I wanted, I sometimes took it myself. Or I had my daughter take it. She has a really great eye. So you'll see some of her work in there as well. And uh, there's photo credits for every photo in the book. The photography is really fantastic. You can see the artist's name, is, as Irene mentioned, with the photo credits. It, it's just, it's an absolute delight to go through. Something that I hear so often from folks who listen to Twisted Philly who aren't in the area, they know what they're going to do when they come visit. If they ever get the chance to come to Philadelphia, they know where they want to go. And so I think with this book, with Unique Eats and Eateries of Philadelphia by Irene Levy Baker, not only will you know where you want to go to tour or museums, you know exactly where you're going to want to go to eat. Yeah, I, I love what you did with it, the way you put sticky notes in. Um, I think it's fun if people circle the places they want to go, they cross out the places they don't want to go. I mean, I think that's half the fun, and then work your way through it. I think there's a tour in that book somewhere. You know, you're not the first person to mention that. I take a lot of food tours. I've taken food tours in San Francisco and Tel Aviv and uh, here in Philadelphia. I just took a Fishtown tour. There could be a food tour in this for sure. And in fact, once I had a friend send me an article that Craig LeBan, the Philadelphia Inquirer's food critic, wrote about ice cream places. I think she just sent it to me as an FYI. What she didn't expect was for me to map them, set a date, and make her go on an ice cream crawl with me to try them all. I think you need to start doing I think you need to start doing a tour. <laughs> it was a fun day, I must say. 
an ice cream parlor crawl instead of a pub crawl. Well, speaking of pubs, you've also got a section on beer gardens. I'm sure there are cities that have a lot, but it seems like Philly has the most pop-up beer gardens every season. Yeah, I love the beer gardens. I love all of our public door space that's cropping up, like Spruce Street, Harbor Park, and Dilworth Park. I mean, I think those are things that make Philadelphia different and really special. And the fact that they have food trucks and beer and, you know, oh, and Cherry Street Pier now just opened. I think those are some of the things that make Philadelphia really shine and special. I'm not a big drinker. So in order to research the bars in the book, I sort of had to get outside my comfort zone a little bit. So the night that my research assistant, aka my husband, came home and said, what are we doing tonight? And I said, we're going on a bar crawl. He was like, no, really. And I said, no, really, we are. So he would drink at the first place. I drank at the second place. And then he drank at the third place. We got through a lot of bars that way. And I have to say, in some ways, that's been life-changing because we found bars that we love and go back to on a regular basis now. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Places you might not have considered before. Right, like One Tippling, which is a cute little bar near 20th and Chestnut that's decorated, I like to say, like your grandfather's parlor if your grandmother was his mistress. Oh. Yeah, it makes you want to go. Oh, I like that. (laughs) What I think is so great about the book, too, is that it, it encourages experiences. Definitely. This time of year, folks can easily get caught up in things and shopping. And when you give somebody an experience, you're creating memories. This book just opens the door for so many different experiences at so many, at so many wonderful restaurants. Well, thank you. And you also get to know the restaurant on a different level. It's not just about the food. It's, you know, you get to know a little bit about the owners and the thought process and some of the interesting things that made that restaurant what it is. And I'm sure in some cases, at some locations, you could even ask somebody, you know, I read about this and I read this story. Is there anything more? Sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the restaurateurs love to talk about the restaurants and their stories and share a little bit. This has been a delight. I cannot believe it's been two years since we sat down and talked. We need to remedy that and do this a little bit more often. Does that mean I need to write a third book? Is there a third book in the works? A lot of people ask me that. My publisher called me and asked me the same question. And I said, I can't even think about it till I finish uh, <laughs> with the book talks and things for this book. I don't know. I didn't know there'd be a first book. I didn't know there'd be a second book. And I have no idea what the, what the future holds. We definitely don't need a third book for us to get together and sit down. And, and maybe we should... Pick out one of the restaurants and go out to lunch. That would be I think really we already fun. have a list, right? We sure do. We have a big list. If people want to hear one of my book talks, they're all listed at uniqueeatsphilly.com. And my books are available there too. Go to uniqueeatsphilly.com. You can see the list of all of her appearances. You can also order the book. And remember, if you order the book through Irene's website, you're going to get a signed copy, which is something you can't get through Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any of the other retailers where her book is offered. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Let's go eat. (laughs) I am so grateful for the time Irene recently spent with me to talk about her latest book, Unique Eats and Eateries of Philadelphia. I remember the first time I sat down to chat with Irene. I found her to be this effervescent, captivating person, someone I'd felt as if I'd known and could listen to for hours. That comes through in her books. The enjoyment and love she has for this city, its attractions and history, and obviously its restaurants. Well, it just leaps off the page. You can order Irene's latest book, Unique Eats and Eateries of Philadelphia, on her website, uniqueeatsphilly.com. Plus, her first book, 100 Things to Do in Philadelphia Before You Die, is also available on her website. 
When you order her books, make sure you mention you heard about them on the Twisted Philly podcast, and Irene will autograph them for you. That's a special treat you won't get if you order from Amazon or other booksellers. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.